1: At this early stage in the investigation, divining for motive was like divining for water, but without a magic stick. Why hadn't the murderer left some clue or made some statement? They usually do. Why go to all this trouble with so much premeditated cruelty, only to keep your reasons obscure? If the killer had a message whose opacity wasn't helping his cause... Jane had to acknowledge that the inventiveness with which the murderer had recreated his tortures was truly remarkable, but his purpose if there was one had been lost in the process, or was this sadism, pure and simple, extreme cruelty for no other reason, but the perpetrators grim satisfaction. Yet for all the obscurity links were beginning to emerge as Jane drew lines between words and highlighted others. Medieval torture, charitable foundations, the Catholic Church, a papal knight, a low-level bagman, pain and inevitable death, unspeakable suffering, and now some new additions offered up by the first victim's widow. If Jane ever wondered why she did this work, she only had to look at her scribblings. She was at the beginning of a very long process, and she was hooked.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Roger Simpson is the creator of 17 series for television, including Good Guys, Bad Guys, Stingers, Something in the Air, and the acclaimed telemovie series Halifax FP and its sequel Halifax Retribution. Today, I'm talking to Roger Simpson about his first novel, Halifax Transgression. Roger Simpson, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Roger, you've moved Dr. Jane Halifax in what some might say reverse order from the television screen to the book. And as the writer of the screenplay, was that an easy and
1: natural process for you? No, it wasn't an easy process for me. Um, I've spent all my career writing film and television, and uh, this is my first book. So it was actually a terrifying uh, transition uh, because I just simply hadn't done it before.
0: Now, the character of forensic psychiatrist Dr. Jane Halifax is in many ways already defined by the way Rebecca Gibney played her in the TV series Halifax FP. But how much, if any, reinvention of Dr. Jane Halifax's character did you feel you had to do?
1: Well, in the book, of course, you access for the very first time Jane's mind, the internal story, which you never get a chance to, to do in television. Television is portraying what the character does and, and telling the story through action. Now there was an opportunity to examine her mind and her thoughts and her motivations in a way that is only implied in the the subtext in in television. So it was a a whole brand-new process and a a process of discovery for me because I could explore things that you just don't get an opportunity to do in television. It was uh, quite liberating, really, and and it's a a chance to see a whole new side of her. But um, you can't really access through drama. Um, So it was uh, pretty exciting. Scary, scary, but exciting,
0: yeah. And it's now 20-something years uh, since Halifax FP TV series ended, although you did revisit Jane Halifax with Halifax Retribution in 2020. How has the passage of time affected the way you portray Dr Jane Halifax in this book? Well, she is 20 years older.
1: <laughs> so I had to I first had to go through that process with uh, Halifax Retribution two years ago when we did the television miniseries which really brought the character back after twenty year absence. So she had been through lots of experiences in between. she was in a long term relationship, she had a stepdaughter. These are all things that happened in that twenty year period in between. So the book, in a sense, carried that on, although in the course of retribution, she, of course, her long-term partner was murdered. So the first task with the book was to cope with the aftermath of that. So there was plenty of material to deal with, and being able to access her thoughts was definitely an advantage. Is she somehow wiser, more introspective? I think she's wiser, and I think she is more introspective. She's still addicted to this world, which she actually left for a long period during that gap between Halifax FP and and retribution, because at the end of Halifax FP, she was pretty burnt out. She went to the academic world, and she became Professor of Forensic Psychiatry at Melbourne University, which is where she is at the beginning of retribution. And her partner is surprised and a little bit fearful for her when she goes back into the world of forensic psychiatry, back into the world of working with the police, back into the world of of serial killers and um, the very world that burnt her out way back 20 years ago. So it's with some trepidation that she goes back into this world, but she is addicted to it and has to admit that this addiction is real and that the academic world never really did it for her. There's nothing like being on the front line. And she likes cops. She likes working with them. She understands them.
0: And she was pleased to go back there. Let's now move from the law enforcers to the victims. The book begins with a very interesting and rather enigmatic sculpture on which the first victim, Nigel Woods, was a billionaire and a patron of the arts, and he's found impaled on this thing called the House of the Stolen. This seems, in a way, to set the tone for Halifax transgression. I was telling a story about a sadist,
1: and the, the, there's no, no worse crimes than medieval torture, which is almost unspeakable, the suffering that was inflicted on people in those times. And so... I had my murderer try to recreate these tortures. I think if you're dealing with violence and a violent criminal, there's no way, you can't pussyfoot it around it. You've got to face it. You've got to explain it properly. So once I embarked upon medieval torture, I was kind of, I had to study medieval torture and I had to replicate it in a modern world. That sculpture was um, based on a, A sculpture with large spikes on it which was called the house of the stolen the house of the suicide was the original sculpture and i had a fictional one based on that called the house of the stolen and really i was looking for a an object with very large spikes upon which you could impale
0: a victim and that's only the first of several murders, and a second one, uh, which is Frank Bernero, and he his body is incrementally stretched before he died, dislocating his limbs, and a very unusual deployment for rats. Well, that actually
1: was combining two um, tortures which usually weren't combined. You know, rats in a cage eating their way into the stomach of a of a victim is is one form of medieval torture. The rack, or more correctly, the ladder in this instance, where Someone is stretched uh, in suspension, you know, up in the air, um, as opposed to on a rack and, and 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 pulled their limbs pulled in different directions on a like a table like platform. Um, that this was a combination of two tortures, which the Jane consults with an expert in medieval torture at Melbourne University. He points out that they actually. Uh, He didn't think the torture had done his homework properly because these two (laughs) tortures are never combined. But that was just um, trying to fit in an extra torture along the way of, because I think I'd do four in the end. What you're really interested in is the impact it has on Jane and the investigating cops and the victims' families. But in order to show that those reactions, you've got to indicate the crime and its graphic nature and Also, it's an insight into the perpetrator himself. You've got to show how cruel he is. And that, of course, is the main task for Jane is to work out why. Why is he so insufferably cruel? What motivates him? Because when she sleuths her way through a crime psychologically, as opposed to a detective looking for clues or a cop looking for evidence, she does it psychologically. So she's got to grapple with this almost unspeakable crime or series of crimes and try to figure out what's driving this person. And in so doing, she finds her way to the truth. This
0: medieval torture theme intersects with the Catholic faith. How do those two themes uh, interact in Halifax transgression?
1: Once Jane is looking at torture, she's looking at the Catholic Church, who are the, the, the worst perpetrators of torture in medieval times. She thinks that must be a clue somehow, that it must be an insight into the criminal's motivation. So she has to examine first torture and then the Catholic Church's use of torture. And she's trying to find the message that the criminal is trying to get across, if indeed there is a message. I mean, she has to accept at one level, it might just be sadism for sadism's sake, for his own pleasure. But she thinks it's more than that, and it is more than that. And so she is examining why medieval torture, why these links with the Catholic Church, what's his message, what is he getting at, what is he going to do
0: next, how can we stop him? As I read Halifax Transgression, it reminded me of a game of chess with multiple players on multiple levels, each player making their move. Do you know the outcome of the game before you write, or is the outcome revealed as you go through the process of writing?
1: No, I guess there's to approaches. I'm very much in the knowing the ending before I start. Um, Bill Link, who was the creator of the wonderful Columbo series, gave me some wonderful advice once. And he says, um, don't leave home without an ending. And uh, he used to plot backwards, and I think I do the same thing. Uh, I, I start with a theme. I start with a, a purpose. I, I, I ask myself, why am I writing this book? I'm not just writing it to frighten the reader. I I have some larger purpose behind the book because Jane is looking for the humanity in any story, despite the crimes. And sometimes she's looking for the humanity in the perpetrator himself um, in order to save him or stop him or treat him. I start with the theme. I start with the purpose of the book And then I very much go to the ending because without a satisfying ending, I think the reader's going to throw the book at the wall. You go on a long journey on a murder mystery or a crime novel or a crime series and you want a satisfying ending that pays off the theme, pays off the story and gives Jane her purpose in embarking upon the journey in the first place.
0: All of the Halifax uh, episodes that you've written are, I guess, classified as police procedural. Uh, that's at least one aspect of the book and the series. Where did your understanding of police procedure come from?
1: Well, I sort of I started life a long time ago as a lawyer, very briefly. I only practiced for three years and I always wanted to be a writer, but it, I didn't get an opportunity until after those three years of practicing law. But I, I knew crime. I knew the law. I'd come across policemen. I'd liked policemen. I liked police drama. I find the whole field appealing. I think I've been writing crime most of my life. My first job was working for Hector Crawford, writing homicide in Division Four. That's a long time ago, but I've been writing cop shows ever since. You know, Stingers, Good Guys, Bad Guys, although that's a comedy version of the same thing. Halifax, Skirts, another series about police women. We did for Channel Seven uh, way back in the eighties. Um, So I've been doing a lot of crime, a lot of crime. (laughs) In the good old days, they wouldn't allow it now because of occupational health and safety, but in the good old days at Crawford's, the writers used to go go to St Kilda and jump in the back of a squad car and go out on the job with the cops and encounter whatever they encountered. They never explained who we were. We were just sitting in the back of the car. If they arrested someone, we had to get out and find our own way home. Uh, but they they didn't acknowledge us. They just, we were there. I don't know whether we didn't look like cops. I guess, I don't know. We looked like work experience people, I suppose. I don't know. But that that was invaluable experience. And then every cop show you do, you have a police advisor. And sometimes you have two. And Crawfords used to have um, Ron Knight and Jim Pulse. And they were very different cops. One was by the book. One was an old style cop who didn't always do things by the book. And Crawford's would give us the benefit of both these police advisors um, advising us on you know, what they would do in that
0: situation and how they would solve the crime, et cetera. Some of the characteristics of those two might show up in Halifax. I, I was particularly intrigued by Showbag.
1: Yes. Well, there's a little bit of Jim Pulse and Showbag, that's for sure. Um, Um, I hope he's not offended by that. Um, An old-time cop with a a, a nose for crime and a great sense of humanity as well. Because it's a tough job. You're dealing with people in extreme distress and it needs a a bedside manner as well as firm but fair, um, Jim used to say, "Is his advice to young cops, firm but fair. And it's it's not a bad motto.
0: I've never heard Bedside manner spoken about in relation to police. (laughs) Well, there you go. That shows
1: you my affection for them. You can't be a good cop unless you hang on to your humanity underneath it all. And that's what I hope comes across in my cops. I hope
0: it comes across that I like them. Certainly does. And uh, I'm impressed by the amount of coffee that uh, seems to be drunk throughout Halifax transgression. It makes me think, how much coffee does it take to write a novel compared to the amount required to write a screenplay?
1: Well, it takes a lot of coffee to do both, and I drink a lot of coffee. A a lot of the behaviour of of many of the characters in a book is a reflection of the author. Favourite restaurants, favourite wines, and lots and lots of coffee is probably a reflection
0: of me. Roger Simpson, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Fantastic. Thank you. I've been talking to Roger Simpson about his book, Halifax Transgression. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.